first let's begin with a word of prayer and then we'll dive in here to our origins of the Bible. Pray with me, please. God, thank you so much for, as people often say, the good problems that we have here at Compass, trying to accommodate the folks that you're drawing to our church. We thank you so much for the work that you're doing in our midst. Like in Ezra and Nehemiah's day, it is clear that your good hand is upon us. We thank you for that. We want to be grateful. We want to be humble. We want to be uh, just filled with thanksgiving, as you say we should, giving thanks to you in all circumstances, for this is the will of God for you in Christ Jesus. Make that a reality for us, God, as we're thankful for the good work here. And when we can't get a park or our food, we don't get through the line quickly, or there's problems picking up our kids, or it's just chaotic, I pray we would be flexible and gracious and magnanimous and just kind and patient. Let us exhibit the fruit of the Spirit as we work through these growing pains here at Compass, and I pray you'd continue, God, just to bless us, meet our needs, let us deal with the uh, facility issues and everything else. Uh, just meet those needs for us, we pray in Jesus' name. All right, origins of the Bible. Hey, do you remember last year? Well, how about the year before that? We dealt with eschatology, end times. We spent a full semester, 14 weeks on that. Last year, we dealt with theology proper, which is our study of God. This year, we're dealing with bibliology, uh, the origins of the Bible. And just to let you know, we've still got a purpose for being on the planet here on Thursday nights. Uh, the things we haven't uh, covered yet, uh, but Lord willing, we will. Christology, pneumatology, anthropology, and homartology, which is Christ, the Holy Spirit, biblical understanding of people and our problem with sin, soteriology, our understanding of salvation, ecclesiology, the study of the church, and angelology, our understanding of angels and demons. We hope to, to get all of those in years to come, not in uh, any particular order. Well, it will be in a particular order, uh, but not the order that you see, which is classically, this is the classic order. But we, we started with the end, went back to the second, and now we're at the beginning, and we'll, we'll work it all out if Christ doesn't come back first, okay? Good deal, our plan. And you can follow along, and the great thing about the first couple pages here, it's all printed for you. Uh, so that's great news. But just to give some understanding to that first statement, here's the first statement there. Our plan is in this study we will survey the origin, nature, transmission, translation, and criticism of the biblical texts. This class should provide you with a knowledge of the Bible's history and examine theories and practices of modern translations and and versions of the Bible. Now, just a couple words here that need to be understood. When we talk about the origins of the Bible, we're going to run through this quickly, but we're going to deal with the content. Where did it come from? Uh, what is the initial origins of the actual content that is captured in the Bible? The nature, what kind of book is it? What kind of authority do we grant to this book? Transmission, by that, we're not talking about the thing in the, you know, under the carriage of your car. We're talking about how did it get from then to now? Translation, of course, we know it's got to be translated in our language because it was originally given in Hebrew and Greek, but we're going to deal with the decisions that govern the conversion of these words, phrases, and sentences from ancient languages to ours. So we'll deal with that. We'll deal with the criticism, and by that, that's kind of a technical word, but what we're just in a general way trying to define that as how do we know that what we have is what was initially written or given or delivered? So that's the criticism. Are we sure we've got the right thing here? So we'll deal with origin, nature, transmission, translation, and criticism of the biblical texts. And that's not a negative word. That's just a technical word to try and understand if what we have in hand is what uh, we should have. 
The objectives of our course, very simply, I would love for you, and this is where we're going, cards on the table, is for you to gain a more profound trust in the source of Christian authority. Uh, I mean, that's where I'm headed. I'm, the jury's not out in my mind. I'm fully convinced they would not be doing what I'm doing. I wouldn't be uh, affirming a, uh, a commitment and relationship with Jesus Christ where I'm not convinced in the veracity, the truthfulness, the trustworthiness of the Scripture. So my... Uh, goal is to share a little bit of some of my thinking, my journey, and the objective facts that lead to the conclusion that we can have confidence in the source of Christian authority, because for us it is our authority. Also to deepen our confidence in the reliability of our English Bibles. There's a lot of folks that are a little iffy about, well, I'm really not sure what I have here, especially when they look, kind of skim through what we're have here before you in the workbook. They think, well, can I even trust it? Maybe you can only have confidence in the wording of the Bible if you know Greek or Hebrew. We're going to try and deal with the fact that it has been a very painstaking process to put the Bible in English, and we have, uh, we can have a, a confidence that what we have in our English texts is a reliable reflection of what God has delivered. Thirdly, to equip us, a bit of an apologetic here, uh, and by that I mean preparing us to deal with the, uh, the charges against the Bible. I'd hope to, by the end of this time, after 13 weeks, to have you adequately equipped to respond to the charges that the Bible in its present form cannot be trusted. Now, I know people say that and often don't mean it, and it's often a smokescreen for other issues. But when someone says, you know, I really would be interested in making uh, Christ the Lord of my life, and I know that's not a fantastic phrase, following in the imperatives of the gospel and making in my life the gospel what it ought to be and Christ who he ought to be. Uh, but I struggle with, is this book really, you know, God's word? When you find someone like that and engage them, I hope that you can take kind of a synthesis of what we've dealt with here in the fall of 2009 and be able to utilize that to deal with that concern or even in a discussion or debate that charge. All right. Uh, if you were to read just one other book along with this study, it'd be great if you had it on your nightstand and you just kind of worked through it as we go along. Uh, I know this isn't a very good heading for two books, but if you were to read just one book, here's two options for you. One is uh, Geisler and Nix's book, From God to Us, How We Got Our Bible. That is the simplified or condensed version of this book, which is not all that technical, but it is more thorough, which is Norman Geisler's and William Nix's uh, book called The General Introduction to the Bible. Both of those books, you, I mean, you probably don't want both. You want one or the other because they cover all the same material. And if you want the shorter paperback version, get from God to us, keep it on your nightstand, especially on Wednesday night, spend some time working through it, and you'll see how it follows what we're going through and it'll really help fill in the crevices that we need filled in in our minds and our thinking about the issues that we're going to deal with. If you're a go-getter, the overachiever, you know who you are, the magna cum laude in high school, the 4.0s, you got to have it all. Then go for the next one there, which is the general introduction to the Bible. It's about three times the size, but it is readable, it's accessible, uh, but it is a more thorough edition of the same material and gives you about three times as much material on everything that is covered there. Uh, I doubt, I mean, knowing how things are going this fall at Compass, our bookstore will have any left by the time you get there. So you'll want to maybe just try Amazon.com, or I'm sure they'll order an extra lot of those by the weekend and maybe check our bookstore 
on the weekend if you're here and you can pick up one or the other of those books. All right, I hate to bring this up, but I got to here because um, with so many people here, uh, we need to talk about cost. We don't want to charge for this. And we, this is a debate. We always got this going on backstage, you know. What are we going to deal with and the cost? And it costs so much. Here's the deal. Our commitment is we don't want to charge for any of this. We want everyone, no matter how much money they have, whether they're broke, in bankruptcy, foreclosure, whatever, to be able to come on Thursday nights, eat a free meal, and enjoy the, the lectures and be able to learn, get a notebook, get all the material and all of that. Uh, that's what we'd like to do. Um, but obviously at all costs. We were having trouble, a little bit of trouble with our copy machines today. We sent just a hundred of those, not just the notebooks, but a hundred of those copies down to the local copy shop and they charge us $500 just to do a hundred of those. And, and then of course we're dealing with all the costs in-house and the food of course costs at least six bucks a head. So those are the kinds of expenses that we write fat checks for every Thursday. And I'm just asking you if you would, uh, to consider if you're able, and if you are able, and God is blessing you to cover people who aren't able, to use that jar that's on your table right there, and to, to put something in it uh, that will help to defray the costs of Thursday nights. And that, that's important because we, we don't want to charge, and uh, we want those of you that are able to pick up um, and compensate for the costs that are increasing every week to do ministry here at Compass, particularly on Thursday nights. All right? And if you say, well, I didn't come prepared, that's fine. And even on the weekend, if you think about it and you say, oh, I should put in a little extra this weekend because I want to help Thursday nights, there you go. And if you're visiting and there they go talking about money, the guy sitting next to you who regularly comes will tell you he never does that. We never talk about money, uh, rarely, but uh, there we go because it's a reality and the costs are doubling and tripling around here for everything. All right. Blah, blah, blah. Books are free. Again, we want to give them to everyone who comes, but whatever. They cost a couple bucks for the whatever. I don't know. Just you decide. And then pay for somebody who, who's, who's not going to. You know, I don't want uh, anyone to not come because of that. So figure it out. I mean, if you go to Talbot and take this class, <laughs> I don't know. Our, our guys can tell you it's a lot of money. Thousands of dollars. All right. Hey, there's a long list. Oh, I already said all that. Long list here. Uh, and it may be intimidating now, but we'll refer back to this list. Next couple of pages here deal with books and uh, sermons and websites. And I would like you just to kind of glance through those right now and know that we'll be kind of bringing ourselves back to this list as we move through different sections and starring a couple of these books. But uh, they're there for you. And of course, the titles on a lot of these are telling. And if you reach a particular point in the study and a question comes up, because we have so many people and it's hard to take questions from the floor, although maybe we'll arrange that as we get near the end of the semester, uh, you can go through this list and find a book that may be applicable. And all of these, I would say, would be recommended uh, and helpful. Some of them are source material that just capture some of the issues uh, that surround this. Others are interpretive, uh, but all of them are instructive. So I think that will be a helpful list. Just to hasten down to the other part here, let's go to um, sermons, related sermons and lectures. And since I just talked about money, I thought I'd point out all of this is free. Love that. Focalpointradio.org or fpr.info, you can get all of these, but they are um, 
I think, germane to this. And if this is a season of your life where you're really trying to get this whole topic under your belt, here are some other messages. Some of them were given in a lecture format, others in sermonic format on a weekend, but they might help you uh, think through some of these issues. And you can put those on your MP3 player. You can get them all downloaded. They're all free on fpr.info um, or focalpointradio.com. Uh, or org, right. I think .com may get you there too. Now, these are also free, the websites, and some of them are just places to start and then you can start clicking around and, and getting some very interesting information plus some high-res pictures of things that we're going to talk about that I gave you some very poor copies of in your workbook, but the best we can do with black and white uh, printers. But some of these websites, and as you can see, some of them are done by people who don't have very user-friendly URLs, so you've got to carefully, letter for letter, type that into your browser window there. But some of these we might refer back to, uh, but they'll give you some good information as to what we're dealing with. Uh, the simplest one, if you just think, well, ah, this is, looks too confusing, this would probably be the bottom one, which is really just an elementary kind of history of the Bible, and it's got some neat multimedia there. And we could have made this list long, but I thought we'd stick with just some basics here, and we'll refer back to them as time goes on. Good? All right. Now, what we want to do is um, get a lay of the land here with an introduction of where we're headed. What we're going to do in this chart right here will give us the sections that we will deal with as we move through the next 12 or 13 weeks. Okay? So let's work on this. You got God who's got a thought. That's our presumption. There is a God, and God has revealed himself, as Francis Schaeffer used to say. He is there, and he's not silent. There is a God. Not only is it an intuitive belief, we believe it, it matches the uh, evidence that's available to us, and that God is a communicator. He has a set of thoughts about reality, and he communicates those to... This is the uh, word generally used for the folks that are in the habit of receiving that information, the prophets, very specific class of people in the Bible. That first step, and we'll deal with this briefly, is the step we call revelation. God reveals his thoughts to people. That one step needs to be understood because it's the first link in the chain to get from what God thinks to holding up a Bible verse in English and saying, hey, this is what God says we ought to believe or this is what God says we ought to do or this is what God says we ought to value. If we're going to have that kind of relationship with the Word of God where the authority of God is seen in the text, we have to start with understanding the first step, that God reveals himself to people. Okay? Easy one. Secondly, that prophet then, of course, if we're dealing with the Bible and that chain is leading inexorably to the, the scripture, that thought in the mind of the author, the, the prophet, has to get into to print. He's going to write it down. That step is called inspiration. These will memorize. Okay? First one is revelation, and the second one is inspiration. That is the word that came from the actually from the Latin Vulgate, we'll get into all that, that we chose to find into English translations in the 15th and 16th century to capture this process where God guides and governs the prophets to put down his thoughts on paper. God reveals, prophets write, 
the process results in something we call scripture, but that governance of the process, we call that inspiration. More on that, and also you'll find we're not real keen on the word, but we can improve it because that Latin word brings us to some wrong conclusions, but we'll get there. Okay, Revelation, inspiration. Now, we've got a document that Paul wrote or Jeremiah wrote or Moses wrote or, or Jude wrote, and it's got to somehow be compared to some other document that talks about God. Uh, and we've got to make sure, is this really a, a, a message that comes from God to a real prophet? Because God is always trying to deal with that in the Bible. Is this a true message from God? Or is this someone just writing down something, claiming to be from God, and it's not real? That process, we call it canonicity. And spell it right, there's only one N here in the middle of the word. If you put two N's there, it's some explosive device you kill people with. This is not that. This is canon with one N in the middle. And that N, one N, helps us understand we're not talking about Weapons, we're talking about a standard. That's what canon means, a standard. And there is a standard applied to figure out whether the Gospel of Thomas or the Gospel of Luke is a genuine article. And then we also use it in another sense, in being descriptive of the Gospel of Luke. Now we say that is the canon. It is the standard and guide for life. But that process, and this has become very relevant in the day of the Da Vinci Code and all this discussion about the Gospel of Thomas and all the Gnostic writings, and people say, well, wait a minute, and this has really been effective in our day for the skeptic that's looking for a reason to dismiss your Bible, right? They've said, hey, what about all these other things? Well, we're not sure, we can't know, and who can know, and well, I don't even believe any of it then. Canonicity, we need to understand that process. How do we know that the 66 books that we hold between the leather covers of our Bible are the writings inspired by the prophets that came from the mind of God? Got to deal with canonicity. Thirdly, if we have something, say it is the Gospel of Luke, it's got to make its way from the first century, if we know that's the authoritative written text from God that came through the prophet, it's got to make its way to today. And I put a couple pictures in there, we'll get to these, but the fragments that still exist today, that we call it extant manuscripts, they're existing manuscripts, how do we get from there to here? This process is called transmission. We've already introduced that word in the course description. We need to try and understand how did it get from then to here. Because that's another thing that people always say. Well, the Bible's been rewritten, you know, millions of times, so I can't believe it. And it's like the telephone game, and it's all been distorted, and I don't know. It's been rewritten so many times, you can't, you, I can't trust it. We're going to talk about the process of transmission. And is there a way for us to understand the books that we have here in our Bibles are actually preserved properly, carefully, and accurately through the centuries. That would be important because the first books of the Bible are claimed to have been written in the Exodus out of Egypt, which was 1445 BC. So that was 3,400 years ago. How do I know that what's written in the book of Exodus or Leviticus is really what was written by Moses 3,400 years ago? We'll deal with transmission. Okay? Now we have all these fragments. And here's the thing. We don't just have one copy of, of the book of John. We have thousands of copies. So we have to figure out, as we take all of those Greek manuscripts of the New Testament or Hebrew manuscripts of the Old Testament, we have to turn them into modern Hebrew texts and modern Greek texts. 
You go to seminary, you interact with these, you learn to read these, but you got to ask the question, how do I know when I'm learning to parse Greek verbs that the Greek verbs that I'm parsing here are really the Greek verbs that Peter wrote or James wrote or John wrote? I need to know that this is the right thing because there's thousands of copies and not all of them are identical. They're, they, they vary. And we'll deal with a whole section on variants of ancient manuscripts. That whole discussion is called textual criticism. Textual criticism. And again, criticism is not a negative word. It's, an, it's, a, it's a technical word. We are going to apply some critical thinking to the texts that are on the table to figure out what exactly Paul or Peter or Isaiah actually wrote. Okay? Then, great, we've got what we think now is an accurate reflection of the books of Genesis through Malachi and Matthew through Revelation. I now, uh, if you're not fluent in Hebrew and Greek, I got to read it in English. How do we get from those languages to this language? Because we have all these English translations. We got to deal with the issue of translation. Because your Muslim neighbor, and I happen to have one from Iran, uh, their concern is, hey, you have all those English translations of the Bible. We only have one translation of the Quran, right? So you guys, how can you even know? I mean, you got the, the NIV, and you got the ESV, you got the, you know, the RSV, and you got the KJV, you got the NKJV. So, you know, who knows what that's all about? We'll talk about that. Okay. You tell me now, interactive church. God's got a thought in his mind. It's going to go into the prophet. We call that step? Revelation. Revelation. It's in the mind of the prophet. It's going to now get on paper. We call that step? It's on paper now. We've got to decide, is this really a bona fide book of God's word? We call that? Okay, we've got a bona fide book. It's got to now get its way to us. Now it's got, we got, we got a whole desk full of them. We've got to figure out whether they belong in the critical edition of the Greek New Testament or the Hebrew Old Testament, that step's called? Now, okay, I got, a, I got a reliable copy of the Hebrew Old Testament and a reliable copy of the Greek New Testament. Now I got to put it in our language, that's called? Okay, those words, quiz yourself at three in the morning. Those are words we need to know and we'll try to unpack those as we go along. Now, much like the books that I listed in the bibliography there in the front, not to be confused with the name of this whole semester, um, I've added some pictures here for you on the following pages. And because we didn't think your generosity would allow us to make color copies, <laughs> they're black and white. Sorry, pastors of little faith. But so there they are. Plus the, co the color copy is so slow. But you've got manuscripts like this. Oxyrhynchus papyri, uh, which sounds like I'm speaking in tongues for you former charismatics. Um, <laughs> sorry. Oxyrhynchus papyri. Uh, we'll find that the, the oldest manuscripts of the Bible are on papyrus. Papyrus are leaves that are dried and they're put in two different directions and flattened into ancient paper. Papyrus is ancient paper, right? That's why that, that little shop in the mall is called that. Right? That's ancient paper, papyrus. Is that what they call it, right? Papyrus? Yeah. Um, most of them are named by really crusty old scholars, so they're never creatively named, right? For instance, Oxyrhynchus papyrus are papyrus found in Oxyrhynchus. <laughs> um, 
and, and that's a city about 100 miles uh, south of Cairo in Egypt. We find a lot of manuscripts in, in the Egyptian deserts because of the arid climate. So we have a lot of the oldest manuscripts usually come from, from northern Africa and, and Egypt. But um, they're, they're the most fascinating manuscripts to, to look through. And there's a class of ancient papyrus that are the oldest. And we have about 114 of those cataloged. And again, they're named by scholars and not very creatively. They just named them with numbers. And we refer to them as P1, P2, P3, all the way to P114, or we're up to 116 now or whatever it is. And as we find them and we bonify this, we, we, we recognize this as a bonafide do- document. It gets cataloged. And then we refer to it as we deal with... Um, uh, with textual criticism and questions about textual criticism by, their, by the number. And then there's a whole set of other manuscripts we'll deal with. But these are some of the oldest, and so I wanted to put those out there for you. And, and these are just fascinating. Look, and we have thousands of, of fragments of manuscripts, and so then some very important ones. Uh, they then get written on a lot of other materials, like vellum and, and uh, animal skins. We have some on, on stone and inscriptions and, and pottery and all that. So we'll get into all of that, but some of these pictures uh, are, are helpful. <laughs> and the stories are fascinating. The Oxyrhynchus manuscripts were found in a, in a trash heap, um, and, and the scholars were able to say, hey, wait, don't do that. And there were thousands of manuscripts on the trash heap that were there to be uh, just tossed out and burned, and they were saved. Uh, so that's good. Uh, but anyway, more on these later. The next one you'll see, which I just exploded the view here for you, uh, is Codex Sinaiticus, which again, Codex has moved now just from pieces of papyrus to actual books. That's what Codex means, the plural, codices, Codex of the, the books. The Codices and Codex Sinaiticus, again, uh, very creatively named by the scholars Sinaiticus because it was found in Sinai, the Sinai Peninsula. Uh, And Codex Sinaiticus, this is the oldest complete Bible that we have found, uh, and it was from the 4th century. And again, these stories are fascinating. Uh, uh, Tischendorf was the one who found these manuscripts at St. Catherine's Monastery and another interesting story. Maybe we'll get into a little bit about that in the 1850s when the monks were there in the St. Catherine's Monastery wanting to use them as kindling in the fire and uh, Tischendorf shows up and goes, well, wait a minute, what are those? And they ended up being, uh, when they pieced them all together because some had been destroyed, uh, the the almost complete uh, ancient, the oldest almost complete Bible that we have um, both in the Greek Old Testament, which is called the Septuagint in the Greek New Testament. It's now in the British Library, by the way. If you're over there in London, you can ask if you want to get in and see that. Um, and I know that's funny, but you always should ask. I was at uh, Yale University and in the summer just uh, in the Library of Antiquities doing a master's program out here, but I was out there, and I know, you know, if you get into all this stuff, you know where all these manuscripts are around the world. And I knew that um, Yale had two very important uh, ancient manuscripts from the uh, third century, the book of Acts. So I went to there and I said, hey, I'm a master's student in theology back in California. I'd love to see your um, papyrus 45 and 46, I think they were. And uh, they said, oh, okay, we'll fill out this form just a minute. We'll have to go to the basement and get it. I said, all right. Now, mind you, on this trip, I was in, at Yale in Connecticut. I had just gotten 
back from Washington, D.C., where they had a 200-year-old document there on display with cops and bulletproof glass and ultraviolet shielding, right? Our Constitution. I mean, it was was like Fort Knox. It was was scary. You've been there to see that? Well, I'm there dealing with a third-century document of the Book of Acts, and they brought it up to me, and they gave it to me, and they apologized. They said, well, we're really sorry because they were plates uh, of glass where they put the, the papyrus between the glass and they had duct taped all around the edges of them. And I mean, they had all been photographed and they'd all been carefully cataloged by the scholars and they gave them to me and they said, well, you can't leave this little glass room, but you can sit here at this table and examine them as long as you'd like. And I'm holding some of the most important manuscripts of the New Testament and I could have taken them and busted them over my knee and lit them on fire with a pocket lighter, right? And I thought, uh, the world's upside down, right? I'm not bashing the Constitution. We should protect that. That's probably a good idea, the Magna Carta, all that. Keep an eye on it. But (laughs) when you have some of the most important documents of church history um, given to a 20, what, I was probably 27 at the time. Uh, I was probably younger than that. 24-year-old master student. It uh, It was ironic. What's that now? Yeah, five years ago, just recently. (laughs) Seems like yesterday. We'll refer back to some of these pages as well, but just to give you a taste of where we go from manuscript to critical edition of the the New Testament. Um, and, And this is very important. It'll be so important that it will help, that it needs to be kept in mind all the way to the translation part of our discussion at the end. We'll be in December talking about translations, and this will be important. In a given page of the Greek New Testament, you will have the text up at the top. Does my cursor show up here? Oh yeah, it does, look at that. Now you can't see much of that on the screen, but you can can, uh, correspond to your page there. The upper part above the line, which I know it's all Greek to you, but at least you you can tell it's Greek, right? And then underneath, it looks like something worse than Greek. See that? That helps us because biblical students and scholars have tried to show why they've chosen this reading over a variant in a different manuscript. And so they they put it all down. And because, I don't know, they don't want super fat books, they, they have a very painful abbreviation system for all of this. And they put it all there at the bottom of the page. So part of going to seminary is not only when your friends say they're going to seminary, not only are they learning to read the language, that's half the battle, then you have to learn to read all of the abbreviations to try and understand the process of why this document here and that document there support this reading in a particular text. That's all before we ever translate, okay? Now, the great thing is Reuben Swanson, over there, I think he's in Claremont right now, and I pray that he lives long and finishes the project. He's working on this project in that other, I don't know if it's on a different page there. It is the next page. He's taken the manuscripts, and he doesn't care how fat the book is. Oh, I love him. He doesn't care how fat the book is. And he has said, I'm going to take all these manuscripts, and every manuscript that is different... I'm going to list it one on top of the other and show you where it's distinct. So every time there's a bold word and just glance down, you can see in parallel lines, oh, I see there's a difference there, right? And and I I can't look closely enough at mine, but let's just look at the first word, day, right? Delta epsilon, see that first word there, right? 
look down one, two, three, four, five. Do you see the first one that's different there? Instead of delta epsilon, it's theta epsilon. Uh Uh-oh, that manuscript there has a difference. And you can see, by the way, this guy was sleeping when he copied it, right? Because delta, depending on what script it's in, looks a lot like a theta if you just glance at it. So that manuscript right there, instead of delta epsilon, it's theta epsilon. And so he lists it there so you can see it. No abbreviations, although there is a lot of abbreviations you can see in the margin. But that is so helpful. And he's doing the entire New Testament to show all the variant readings in every manuscript, in every verse of every book of the entire New Testament. Okay? So helpful. And he's, all, he's old. <laughs> and I've written him, and I've said, oh, may God bless you for many years to finish this project. He's got a team on it, but he's working over here uh, in Southern California trying to complete the project, which I think is the most underrated set of books um, ever published for Greek students. But... I'll bring up in a couple of passages some of this. I may bring supplements on Thursday nights to show you why variants occurred. And I've already showed you why that variant would occur. It would occur because someone glanced at a delta and it looked like a theta and he went, oops, and it's stuck in the text there in that particular manuscript. Are you following all that? That's good. Reuben Swanson, pray for him. Next one. This is the latest and greatest from the uh, German... Bible Society, and the group, um, Kurt Alland, who's now dead, his, his widow, Barbara, uh, is continuing this, this project, and they've only put out like four books so far in the New Testament. They're doing the same thing uh, with a different format. I don't like their format as well, but it does the same thing. And every verse in every book, every chapter of every New Testament book, We've got to see, when you put the thousands of copies of the ancient New Testament down, you start to see the differences, and you come to logical conclusions about what was really said and what was originally written. And it starts to all totally make sense. And you recognize, when you do enough of that, and we'll do a little case study and a lab work here and there, and you'll see, well, it makes total sense. And when people say, well, there's thousands of copies. Well, there were thousands of copies of the Koran, too, by the way. And the question is, are we going to allow those copies to survive, lay them on the, on the table, and then be able to analyze those and figure out why these uh, variants bring us to a conclusion about what Peter actually wrote or what John actually wrote or what Paul actually wrote. And you begin to build an incredible confidence that what you have there translated into English is exactly what was written 2,000 years ago in the New Testament. So more on that later, but these are some of the tools that we use. The next page is an interlinear. Some of you have interlinears at home. They're almost passe now because all you need is computer software, which I did list one computer software program on the bibliography there earlier, and that is uh, Logos or Libronics, which they now call it, which I think if you don't have any Bible software, I know it's a little bit pricey, uh, but it is well worth getting that because it'll do in one click everything that an interlinear will do. But this is an interlinear. An interlinear means we put in interlines the English translation of every Greek word. It takes the Greek New Testament. Once it's determined that this is what we understand the original manuscripts to have said and we put English words underneath them to show you. And then you'll start to realize how weird the Greek sentences go. And some of them, like the best ones, will have parallel columns of of English text. Like this one has the NAS, New American Standard Bible, and it'll have the NIV, and it'll show you 
those English translations and the wooden literal translation of every Greek word. Next page, these are becoming more popular, is what we call a reverse interlinear. Now listen carefully, the difference between an interlinear and a reverse interlinear is ethnocentricity. <laughs> um, sorry. It's that we chose to use the English order as the main line. And what we'll do is take the Greek order and mix that all up and put it under the English words. I say it's ethnocentric because, you know, the Greek sentence order was the original order. We've reversed that and said, well, let's just use the English order in a translation like the ESV, the English Standard Version, and let's now put the Greek words where they belong and jumble them all up. It's helpful because if you don't know Greek and you're just an English reader, then you'll be able to see when you see a word like propitiation or justification, you'll look under and be able to see, okay, now I see what that Greek word is. Because trying to read an interlinear is frustrating because it is so jumbled. This takes you into a little bit more sane process of reading an English text and seeing where they got there. And here they use a lot of uh, uh, abbreviations. Like I know we don't have the key here, but of the sons of God, is that the first thing on the list there? Of the sons of God? Uh, well, it says there, tone uh, huion, uh, which is, and then it, underneath there, it, it transliterates it into English. And then it says R-G-P-M, is that what it says? Okay, R uh, means it's an article, which doesn't help, right? <laughs> Should be A, but they've got other words for A. So article, G means it's a genitive form of the article. Uh, P means it's plural, and M means it's masculine. And that's got to match the noun, which comes next. Noun, genitive, plural, masculine. Okay, those need to match, and sons, obviously, is masculine. And then tone theon, you got another article, R, genitive, form, that's a possessive form, singular, masculine, and then a noun, genitive, singular, masculine. And then the number underneath takes you to the back of your interlinear, which now has a dictionary in the order of Greek words, but you don't need to know Greek because it's all numbered. All you do is look up the number and you'll find the word and see how it's used elsewhere. Reverse interlinear. The only one I think that's out there right now is the ESV. And it is a good tool. And I just, you know, making a little joke about the ethnocentricity. Ethnocentric, you know that word, right? It's all about us. Our ethnic, our English, it's about us. Crossway put that out in 2006. Next page. Old Testament. Don't mean to short the Old Testament, but there are less tools for that. And there's less variance, so there's less debate about it all. But you see a uh, Hebrew text. I just point this one out. This is Psalm 34 because it's an acrostic. If you went to Hebrew school, I know some of you were in frat houses, so you know some of the Greek letters. But if you went to Hebrew school, you know these. this is an acrostic. An acrostic is a poem that starts with the consecutive letters. So it's Aleph, Beit, Gimel, Dalet, Hey, Vav, Zion, Hey, Tate, Yoth, Kaf, Lama. Then it goes right down the list. Well, when you read your... English Psalm 134, you'll miss all that. You don't even remember that it's, I mean, you don't see it. Because it's obviously in English, it's not an acrostic. So, I don't know, I just put that one on there because it's interesting. Now, interlinears, they do make interlinears for Hebrew. It's just that they're gigantic books. <laughs> uh, but if you have Bible software, you don't need it. But here is a sample page of an interlinear, which will have a parallel column. This particular interlinear is a NIV, which is really the only popular one out there right now. ESV hasn't done a reverse one on the Hebrew yet. I assume they're planning it. We may look back to this when we get later on in talking about textual criticism of the Old Testament. Okay, next page. I thought I would give you a little bit of William Tyndale's 
landmark 1526 English translation. He gave his life for this, by the way. He died to bring the Bible into English. He was a Protestant reformer. He was born in uh, just about the turn of the century, 16th century. Uh, died in uh, 1536. He was influenced by Erasmus, who put the kind of a critical edition of the New Testament into Greek, and Martin Luther, who had put the Bible into German for his folks, and Tyndale uh, was the first guy to use the Greek and Hebrew Bibles to start putting an English translation from the original languages into our language. And I put a copy of the actual Tyndale's translation in Gothic lettering, and then I put the uh, modern uh, reading there, which you can see, they just take it right across. And I put, picked a familiar passage for you, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. Uh, here endeth the Gospel of St. Matthew. So, um, more on the English Bible uh, as we get through this thing. We'll talk a little bit about the history of the English Bible. But this is critically important, a landmark translation. I know we always think of the King James Bible, but this was far more important because uh, it was the first time it was done used the medium of print to put it out there, distributed it widely, got jailed in Brussels and uh, burned at the stake for heresy because he put the Bible in the vulgar language of the people. All right. Good enough? Lay a foundation there? More on that. We're just kind of going through the stuff we'll refer back to, but let's get into it now. Revelation. It's not the book of Revelation, although the book of Revelation is called Revelation because it's all about the same thing. It's about God revealing something to John that wasn't known, and he revealed it to him. So it was called Revelation. But let's talk about Revelation, a definition. Divine Revelation. You have a box there? Now we start to write. Ready? Divine Revelation is the act of God. We believe God exists, and he has spoken. He has revealed himself. God has done something. He has, let's use this word, disclosed, right? It is the act of God disclosing to people. God is a God who wants to communicate to his creation. He's disclosing to people that which would otherwise be unknown. That's the act of revelation. God is telling us, teaching us, exposing, revealing, disclosing, giving something to us that unless he did it, we wouldn't know it. It's like if I said, I got something back here in the back room and it's really cool. You'd say, well, you need to tell me what it is. I don't know how cool it is. You got to tell me about it. If, I, if you can't see it, it's otherwise unknown. There's no way you can know unless someone tells you. And the point is God has sent his prophets to tell what God wants us to know. He's disclosed it in the act of revelation, getting that thought, that truth to people's minds. I hear people screaming. Is that our kids in Nawana? They're having fun. Um, is revelation. Divine revelation is the act of God disclosing to people that which would otherwise be unknown. There are two types. Two types. There is general revelation, which I think on your worksheet starts with a definition. I really ought to bring one up here next time. General revelation is the natural or common ways in which God discloses to people what would otherwise be unknown. Keywords, natural or common. Natural or common. That means that it's available to everybody. And everybody, almost everybody, sees this, perceives this, 
takes it in, gets it. General revelation is the natural or common ways in which God discloses to people what would otherwise be unknown. And if you start reading in theology, you'll understand this is a huge topic with huge debate and huge implications. What is the scope of general revelation and what are we understanding about where that leaves people and what about the guy who's only got general revelation? This is a big topic, but it's not where we're going because we're going to talk about a different kind of revelation. But if you want to talk about some avenues, let's turn in our Bibles to Psalm 19 real quick and read this together once you jot it down. The created universe, if we're just going to use big categories, is the biggest category of all to understand God's general ways of revealing himself. Psalm 19, Psalm of David. You can see some of our words here translated into English in ways that helped us come to a decision on how to describe Revelation. Psalm 19. Let's read verses 1 through 6. For the director of music, a psalm of David. Here he goes. The heavens, okay? Now again, in Hebrew, I had this question at the door last week. You do understand that in Hebrew and in Greek, the word heaven is used of three different things. It's used of the sky where the birds fly. It's used of space where the stars and planets hang out. And it's used of God's home. And unfortunately, unlike the Eskimos for snow, they only have one word for all three of those things that were perceived to be up. The birds fly in the heavens, the stars hang out in the heavens, and God lives in the heavens, right? In the heaven. So when we say this, when we understand what he's going to say next here, we catch the fact that we're not talking about God's living room because none of us can see that. We don't know where God lives. We can't perceive that not through natural revelation, but we can perceive through the place where the stars hang out and the place where the birds hang out, we can perceive something of the glory or the greatness or the beauty of God, right? And girls seem to be more in tune to this than guys. <laughs> I just say that because my wife for the last few days has looked at the sunset and said, ooh, right? Which I don't generally do, but she'll pull me over to the window, look at the sunset beautiful and it is and i gotta admit it even as a man's man guy guy you know hey yeah it's cool and it is cool right it's better than other things i see throughout the day it's a beautiful display of god's glory the heavens declare the glory of god the skies proclaim the work of his hands day after day they pour forth speech night after night they display knowledge look at the words declare proclaim pour forth display there is no speech or language where their voice is not heard. There's common, there's general, right? No matter what language the people speak, no matter where they're at, what dialect they're in, they hear this language, they hear this stuff. Their voice goes out into all the earth, their words to the ends of the world. In the heavens, he has pitched a tent for the sun. Now we're talking about the next level, way out there pitch for the sun, which is like a bridegroom coming forth from its pavilion, like a champion rejoicing to run its course. It rises over one end of the heavens and it makes its circuit to the other. Nothing is hidden from its heat. And there is something that we marvel at, whether it's an eclipse or whether it's the constellations or whatever. It's the order of the, of the uh, planets. Wow. Amazing symmetry, knowledge, precision, care, beauty, all of that. We start to say, we learn something about God through the created universe. General revelation. First avenue, created universe. 
Second primary avenue, and again, there are books written on this ad infinitum, but we'll at least deal with these two major categories just so we can contrast it to where we're headed, the Word of God, human conscience. That's another one. Romans chapter 2, verse 14. Once you jot down human conscience, let's go there to Romans chapter 2, verse 14 and read 14 and 15. I'm sorry, I only put 14. I meant to put 14 and 15. Romans 2, 14 and 15. Once you jot that down, look at it with me. And let us understand that God is speaking. That's what the Bible teaches, that God is speaking through not only the created universe that we see and marvel at, but at, he speaks to us through, rather, the human conscience. By the way, and I'm I'm just kind of going quickly over this, but you do understand what the sunset does in terms of contrast to our behavior. Think about that. Right? When you're yelling at your wife because you're angry, and then she says, ooh, come look at the sunset, mm, you feel a disconnect. Am I right? Not only because she's nice enough to say, come on, which is not, I mean, this is not autobiographical, you understand. <laughs> but the three nights she's called me over to look at the sunset, I'm just imagining now, what if I had just been in a fight with her? Do you see what I'm saying? My angry, nasty words would not correspond with the beautiful, rich sunset on the horizon. Do you follow me? There is something being said about the beauty of God that is not reflective in my behavior. God's speaking to me about how even I should speak to my wife. Do you see that? I don't get too specific, but there is something general about that. Secondly, human conscience. Oh, now, think about the fight with your wife. That works too, doesn't it? The human conscience. Indeed, this is in contrast to people that have the Bible now. Romans 2.14 When Gentiles, which the contrast here is people that didn't grow up in Sabbath school, they don't have the scrolls, they're not reading and memorizing the Torah. When Gentiles, who do not have the law, do by nature things required by the law, they are a law for themselves, even though they do not have the law. Verse 15. Since they show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts, their consciences also bearing witness, and their thoughts now accusing and now even defending. Think about that. You have a fight with your wife. You say some things you shouldn't, right? The sunset convicts you, and your conscience convicts you, and you say, I ought to apologize. And you go and apologize. I've wronged her. I should apologize. Now, here's the thing. The law tells you to do that, too. The Bible's clear about making things right. If there's something against your brother, leave it and make it right. All of that issue of reconciliation in the Bible, you don't need the Bible to know that you ought to make up with your wife when you fight with her. See what I'm saying? That is God speaking through that conscience that is pre-wired in everyone. Well, the, the anthropologists say, well, you know, it's the Western civilization. It's been all, you know, saturated with, with the Protestant Reformation. And the only reason we have all these mores and ethics is because we were taught from these religious folks in the Middle Ages. Not true. Go to a, go to, don't go to the place where they're walking around dragging boars behind their, you know, their, their, their bodies speaking in a weird language with bones through their nose. I've been to those places, okay? Go up, take the boar from him, and run into the jungle. <laughs> it's called stealing. They didn't go to Sunday school. They've never read the Bible. They know that's wrong. Am I right? Take their baby. Start slapping their little baby around. <laughs> no one has to teach you. There's, and God didn't even make a verse for that. You don't need a verse for that. It's a universal moray. 
As a matter of fact, honest anthropologists, like here's one if you're a homework assignment person, Zwimmer, Samuel Zwimmer, did a 50-year study in anthropology on the universal mores. And all you have to do is look and see God has programmed people with the basics of right and wrong. He's revealed himself in nature. He's revealed himself in conscience, the created universe and human, human conscience. Are you with me on that? All right, you see that. General revelation, value and significance. Here's the value and significance. You're in Romans still? Turn back one chapter. Unpleasant words, but helpful in understanding the value and significance of revelation. The wrath of God, verse 18, is being revealed. It's about to. It's in the process. Judges standing at the door. James said, it's about to happen. The wrath of God, the anger of God. God's mad. I know that's not the popular view of God. God doesn't get mad. No, I got my love. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who, now you've got to understand general revelation to get this next point, they suppress the truth by their wickedness. Throw a flag on the play, raise your hand and say, well, wait a minute, they didn't go to church, they don't know the Bible, they didn't grow up in Sabbath school, they don't know the scrolls, they didn't read the Torah. doesn't matter. They suppress the truth. Why? Because created universe and conscience both speak and attest to the truth. They suppress that truth with their wicked behavior since what may be known about God is plain to them. Since God made it plain to them for since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, right? Things like his kindness and his justice and his, his patience, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that men are without excuse. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but in their thinking they became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. What's the point? God says, because I've given you enough truth that you've chosen to ignore and suppress, I am going to come and punish you for that. And you will be culpable, held responsible for decisions that you've made because you fought your conscience and you fought what you've learned from the created universe. Look across the page. Chapter 2, verse 11. This is the next one. Let's put it up on the screen. Romans 2, 11. For God does not show favoritism. All who sin apart from the law will also perish apart from the law. Well, there's some parts of the law people don't know, but there are a lot of parts of the law they do know even if they've never had a Bible in their hand. And all who sin under the law will be judged by the law. And there are certain parts of the law everyone is under because of created universe and conscience. For it is not those who hear the law who are righteous in God's sight, but it is those who obey the law who will be declared righteous. We talked about that. If that stumbles your understanding of justification, get the tapes on this passage. Tapes, listen to me. I'm not 25. I would never be 25 and say that. Get the MP3s of that sermon. Where am I? Verse 13? Right, verse 14. Indeed, when Gentiles who do not have the law, we just read that part. Drop down to verse 16. This will take place, what will? When God punishes these things. On the day when God will judge men's secrets through Jesus Christ as my gospel declares. Okay, what's the significance of this? Well, in a, in a phrase, you can jot this down. It is an adequate basis for judgment. Is the Bible important? Absolutely, but you don't need it to stand before God and have God say, hey, I'm sorry, maybe you didn't know all the nuances of this book, you didn't learn it all, doesn't matter. You knew enough to know that what you were doing was wrong, you're held accountable for it. Now, depart from me, I never knew you. That is going to be a reality for people just based on general revelation. 
It is enough knowledge from God for God to be just in judging. He will not judge people the same way that he judges people who have an exposure to the law. The more you know, the more culpable you'll be, which is a problem. I remember telling that, I remember coming home from Bible school and sitting down with my high school friend and giving him clarity on the gospel. And I kind of threw that line in. I said, you know, now that I've shared this with you, you are more responsible than before I shared it with you. And he looked at me, this pot-smoking uh, alto sax player that I went to high school with and cocaine snorting. I mean, this guy was just surf, surf rat. And he says to me, he says, you mean to tell me that if all of what you're telling me is true, I'm worse off now after you've shared this with me? <laughs> And that conversation ended with him saying, thanks a lot. <laughs> See, and I said, listen, you don't have to bear any of your sin. You can be completely forgiven. There can be in your life no condemnation, none. But you have to put your trust in Jesus Christ. Let's let God be God and repent of your sins. He wasn't interested in that. And that's unfortunate. Maybe I'll stumble across him if he's still alive on Facebook one day. Neil. Never forget that conversation. All right, where are we? Somewhere in the middle of Revelation. Two types of Revelation. General Revelation and the second one, special Revelation. That's the category we've chosen through the centuries to call the second category special Revelation. And again, this isn't, you know, PhD level stuff, but here it comes. A basic definition of special Revelation is specific or detailed ways in which God discloses to people what would otherwise be unknown. Specific or detailed ways that he has revealed to people, or disclosed rather to people, there's our synonym, what would otherwise be unknown, specific or detailed. Let's think that one through. Specific or detailed. Okay, avenues. You can start to fill, oh, what, what was that problem? See, if you bring your laptop, you can just type it in twice as fast. Avenues. Okay, you tell me. Avenues. Special ways that God reveals them. Obviously, one of them is going to be his written word, but there are a lot of other specific ways. I mean, let's just go to the beginning of the Bible. Noah, you've seen the movie, right? <laughs> is told to build an ark. How does that happen? Well, the text seems to say... This is weird. They thought he was weird. He's hearing voices, right? I mean, that's one way God spoke to people specifically. And you've heard it all parodied, build an ark. But I mean, somehow God spoke to him, and we're assuming in some passages you can't get around it, God spoke. Even Paul, being knocked off his horse on the way to Damascus, heard a voice, right? I mean, there are those times when God has moved the airwaves and rattled three inner bones inside a person's ear and they have heard in their own language God saying something. Very rare, by the way. I wouldn't wait around for it. But God has done that. And that's what the Bible says God has done. Some other ways. How about this? Dreams and visions. Dreams and visions, and if you want a uh, non-technical distinction, a dream is when you're sleeping <laughs> and a vision is when you're awake. It's during the day, daytime. Peter had a vision during the day of the sheet coming down out of heaven and he was told to go 
and see Cornelius, an Italian, which was all scandalous, and share the gospel. The Jew was going to go see the Italian and share the gospel with him. And that came through a vision dream at night. Joseph has a dream, which his brothers weren't real keen on, about all of them bowing down. And dad thought that was cute until, of course, he said, you and mom were bowing down as well. Though, which didn't go over, and then he changed his mind about how cute he thought the dream was. The dream, though, came true. It was God speaking to Joseph through a dream. How about angelic visitations? I mean, those are clear. I mean, most of these, by the way, are happening before there's any written revelation from God. The details aren't in the text. The details are in something else. Lot's told to get out of town because angelic beings show up and say, get out of town. Now, if he had a New Testament, he would know he should have got out of town. But he didn't have that. So God uses angelic visitation. How about the Urim and the Thummim? Well, how about the Urim and the Thummim? The, the what? Sunday school grads know what Urim and Thummim is, right? Or at least we think we know what Urim and Thummim is. We're not real sure what Urim and Thummim is. But whatever it was, was something that the high priest had, and it was related to his breastplate that he did. But somehow, and I put lots next to it, because they would cast lots, and it was somehow related to that, but God would reveal his will through those means. Kind of like the, you know, the crazy eight ball, Right? is not a suggested means of divine revelation today. <laughs> but apparently it was some form of that. And we could go on. Theophanies. Right? Circumstances. Jesus Christ, according to Hebrews chapter 1 and John chapter 1. And he was the Word of God. Right? The living Word. God has spoken to our fathers through the prophets in many portions, many ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us in his son, Hebrews 1, 1 and 2, right? That was an act of revelation. Just watch him and you'll hear from God. The Holy Spirit, obviously, was an avenue of revelation. But the one we're interested in for the rest of our time together is the Bible. Clearly, the Bible is the focus of our study, and it is the most significant avenue of divine revelation from God to men. A couple things. Now we'll get our Bibles moving again. The nature of the Bible as special revelation. This is great. Isaiah chapter 8. I want you to jot that down. Isaiah chapter 8. <laughs> this is so good. This, talk about a timeless verse. Check this out, if you haven't read this lately. Isaiah chapter 8. Big book, big target, 66 chapters, easy to find. Isaiah chapter 8. <clears throat> There's a lot of problems Isaiah is trying to deal with. And whenever there's a breakdown in society, people are ignoring the written word. And obviously, by Isaiah's day, there were plenty of books that God had inspired. They were inscribed through the prophets and the pen of the prophets, and they were there to consult, but people didn't want to do it, just like today. Isaiah 8.19, when men tell you to consult mediums and spiritists, maybe you're hanging out at Venice Beach, or I've seen them now at the Irvine Spectrum, haven't you? Who pays for that? 
Anyway, you can just drop them a little card with Isaiah 8, 19, and 20 on it. When men tell you to consult mediums and spiritists who whisper and mutter, I love that, should not a people inquire of their God? Why consult the dead on behalf of the living? Because that's what the spiritists and mediums did. To the law and to the testimony, exclamation point. This is strongly stated. Why consult the dead on behalf of the living? To the law and the testimony. If they do not speak according to this word, they have no light of dawn. I know that's poetically stated, but you get it, right? The law and testimony were the words used for the written word of God. You've got the Torah. You've got plenty of the historical books already beginning to be written. Go back to those. Why are you consulting the mutterers and the whisperers? Go back to that. And the great thing about it is, we can sit around and consult each other, and the one with the weirdest hairdo or the longest fingernails, they become you know, the medium of our information. Bottom line is this. You go to the law and the testimony, and you've got something objective and propositional, and it's right there in black and white. When you talk about the nature of special revelation, it is something that's unalterable. It is something propositional. It is something third party, if you will. It's there. It sits apart from me. It's not subjective. It's not something where we sit around and decide what's right and wrong. We can look to see what it is. And that's what Isaiah said. Come on, back to the law and testimony. You're in Isaiah 8. Go to Isaiah 40, if you would. You've heard this one. But not only is it an external, and I love the word propositional, it's there in black and white. It's objective. It's outside of me. It's not internal. It's not a feeling. He says this, it is something that when it is in black and white, and this is a no-duh, but take a look at it, verses 6 and 7 and 8. 6, 7, and 8. Isaiah 40, are you with me? Verse 6. A voice cries, or says rather, cry out. And I say, what shall I cry? Well, how about this? All men are like grass, and their glory is like the flower of the field. Not much for my self-esteem, but there it is. The grass withers and the flower falls, but because the breath of the Lord blows on them, Surely the people are grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of our God stands forever. See, the point is, you can't get around the fact that this is going to be here tomorrow when you and I are dead. And whatever it says, you know what? You can tell me homosexuality is just a wonderful alternative lifestyle. It's no problem. And you can have all the famous talk show hosts tell you that it's cool. No, no issue. Live and let live. Let them love who they want. Who cares? They're not hurt. Say whatever you want. But if this book says it's wrong and God will judge people for aberrant sexual behavior, whether it's adultery, right? whether it's fornication or whether it's homosexuality, if that's what this book says, when we're done with all of our opinions and we're dead, right? When they're selling our, our plot for the third time, you know, up in Inglewood or whatever, right? Listen, this is still going to be there. And it's still going to say what it says. And if it's true, and we're going to deal with that, is it true? Is it valid? Then doesn't matter. I had it open to the concordance. That didn't really, that wasn't good. Are we taping this? Did you get a close-up on that? better if I'm actually in a Bible book. Isaiah 40. And that was weird, wasn't it? Isaiah, just opened Isaiah 40. Um, it's propositional. It's enduring. It's there. It's eternal. It's in black. And forget even what we think of it. It's there. That's the great thing about the nature of God's word. You want to know what's true? We don't have to be subjective. We don't have to be feeling. We don't have to talk to those who whisper and mutter. It's in black and white. That's at least one thing about special revelation. 
I mean, the clouds will look different tomorrow at sunset, but these verses are going to look the same tomorrow. See? All right. Where are we at? Nature. One more. Scope. I won't make you turn there because we're out of time. But Deuteronomy 29, 29, I love this. Helpful. Because a lot of of people don't want to listen to the obvious words of God because they say, there's things that I don't know. Right? 29, 29 puts it so well. The secret things belong to the Lord. In other words, there's things he hasn't told us. But the things he's revealed belong to us and our children forever that we may follow all the words of this law. The point is, hey, I know God didn't write an entire encyclopedia for us. But what he did tell us, he told us, and we ought to do it. And if he didn't tell us something, sorry, he didn't tell us. And the point is, it's not comprehensive. Okay, I know the Bible is not comprehensive. But, 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, it is adequate. It may not be comprehensive, but it's adequate. I know the Bible doesn't address everything we may want it to address. But here's how it's put. You don't need to turn there, unless you're really fast with your pages. But it says, His divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness. Everything. Through our knowledge of Him who called us by His glory and goodness. Through these, His goodness and glory, He has given us His great and precious promises. Now He's going back to the written word, the law and the testimony, the things that are inscribed. So that through them you may participate in the divine nature and escape the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. In other words, it is enough for me to make it through this life and do life right and then get to the other side of this life and be right with God. I can be justified and I can be sanctified and this book is enough for that, right? It may not tell me everything I need to know and the philosophers over at UCI may say, well, I got a question the Bible doesn't address. You might be right. But it's enough for me to keep my life out of trouble And it's enough for me to, at the end of my life, not hear from God, depart from me, I never knew you. And if that's what it's got, that's enough, right? Thank you. It's affirming. One more, because we're out of time. That doesn't help when I keep saying that, does it? (laughs) Sorry. Significance. Significance. Well, the significance is, is grave. It's huge. It's gigantic. You don't need to turn there, 2 Peter 3.15, but bear in mind, he says... Our Lord's patience means salvation, just as our dear brother Paul also wrote you with the wisdom God gave him. There's another statement of inspiration. He writes in the same way in all these letters, speaking in them of these matters. His letters contain some things that are hard to understand, I'll grant you that, which the ignorant and unstable people distort as they do the other scriptures, that's the word for the Bible, right, the writings, to their own destruction. In other words, if you twist it or distort it, or ignore it, which is not stated there, but obvious, you do it to your own destruction. So, what's the nature of it? It's propositional, it's objective, it's eternal. The scope of it, it's not, it doesn't say everything. There are secrets we don't get, right? But it's adequate. Significance, life and death. Eternal issues, heaven and hell. Understanding this, if it is indeed the word of God, I mean, it's, there's nothing more important than that. That's why it's the most important book ever written. That's why even today, with people bashing it left and right, you do understand this is the world's bestseller. There's not another book that's even come close. I mean, this is the book that has endured persecution. You can have a guy like William Tyndale put it into English, and you can take him, you can wrap him, you can put him in tar, and you can burn him in the streets of England, and it doesn't matter 
The book is going to get into the language of the people and the people are going to have the mind of God on paper and it is always going to be the most important book ever written. I mean, this is what we're here to study is the significance of this text. And whether we get it or not, it is of grave importance. Pray with me. God, thanks for today. Thanks for the chance for us to just scratch the surface and get started on this wonderful topic to understand this book Try to put to rest the, you know, the, the $2 arguments against the Bible because people just want to sweep it under the rug. Let us be honest in our research of this book. And if we come to the conclusions that so many others have that have come before us, that this indeed is the codification of the truth of God's word, that your mind is inscribed for us on paper, preserved for us, we have now in English an accurate reflection of the truth then God, I pray it would take a prominent place in our lives and our thinking that we would get back to what we know is right. That is to read it, to study it, to memorize it, to meditate on it, to make it the theme of our song and the topic of our discussion. Get us back to making the book what it needs to be so that you can be in our lives who you're supposed to be, the God of gods, the King of kings, and the Lord of lords. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.